Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in foggy, gray, Shanghai, China, for this, the 100th episode of Deep State Radio. And I am joined. Who exactly? And I am joined by our core group of regulars that you can find in their usual places in London, England. We have Corey Shockey of Double I, Double S. And what's the weather like in London, England, Corey? Well, uh, it is overcast, and I miss the cerulean blue skies of my native land of California, David. Well, they miss you. I'm sure that that's true. And in Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have David Sanger of the New York Times. And what's the weather like there? It's a perfect English summer's day. Yeah, it was actually... (laughs) Decently cool, although I have to say I just came out of um, the, the Great Isles of Great Britain, and it was better there than it is here. So well, that's because here it's sunny with a predominance of meatballs. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Wow. wow, that is just the, that's the level of erudition that we expect for every episode of Deep State Radio. <laughs> no, that's the erudition we get a hundred a hundred sessions in. It was really yeah. bad on session one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is the we're, game. We're working our way up. By the end of the summer, we should be to Dr. Seuss. Um, Guys, it's 100 episodes, and the world has not been appreciably improved by Deep State Radio. The world is still a big, stinking mess. Um, I, you know, Corey, you were just in Singapore talking to the world's leading national security experts. Did you come away with any sense of optimism? Well, David, as you would expect, I did come away with a sense of optimism, as is my birthright as the as the possessor uh, and frequent wearer of the tiara of optimism. I did. Here are a couple of things I was optimistic about. The first was that the American Secretary of Defense was calm and clear about American commitments to preserve the rules-based order in Asia as China rises and was admirably transparent about what he thinks those important rules are. I was optimistic that the Philippine Minister of Defense gave an outstanding uh, lessons learned of the Philippine experience fighting an insurgency in Marawi. Um, and strikes me that they are learning the right kinds of lessons for managing a very demanding problem. 
I was optimistic that the prime ministers of Britain and France not only argued the good case for the rules-based order in Asia, but had ships simultaneously uh, conducting freedom of navigation operations in waters that the government of China claims are territorial rather than international. I was optimistic that despite the genuinely disgraceful behavior of the Trump administration, that America's allies, even while they are deeply disappointed in us, are, you know, Canada, France, other close American allies have the perspective that even close allies sometimes hit rough patches and that we need to sustain our cooperation despite those rough patches. And this isn't the first one we're going to get through. I am optimistic that um, every time China talks at length about their role in the world, they reaffirm America's alliance relationships for us at a time in which we would otherwise be squandering them. I think there's a lot of good news out there. Wow. Well, that's fantastic, Rosa. The, ru the rules... <laughs> The rules, the rules based order is working in the world and everything is fine, Rosa, right? Everything is fine. And, and that's what we want to tell our listeners on the, the hundredth episode of deep state radio. Everything is fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Reported from <laughs> your basement. So let me just ask a couple of specific questions, um, to follow up and let me start with you, Rosa. Uh -huh. Corey, Corey's talking about the rules based order. How's that doing in the U.S.? Um, not so great in the U.S. I mean, it. I, I agree with Corey. There are a few good signs that a, a few other nations uh, are attempting to defend the rules-based order, uh, although unfortunately not all of them. But right here in the United States, the biggest assault on the rules-based order domestically, unfortunately, appears to be coming straight from the White House. Uh, as, we, as we record this podcast, we've just had a series of uh, batshit crazy Trump tweets to the effect that he can pardon himself and the special counsel's unconstitutional, not to mention things coming out of uh, uh, his administration and close close advisors um, to the effect, uh, really, it's, it's like they have the whole Nixon, if the president does it, it can't be illegal, uh, which people have used as sort of a, a byword and a warning for decades now. They, they seem to be regarding that instead as a, a, a script uh, well, they've, they've, been gone a step, they've gone a step further than Nixon, because I don't actually recall Nixon having his lawyers publicly state that he could shoot the former head of the FBI. <laughs> well, you know, it was only a small step from Trump himself claiming he could he could murder somebody right on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't make any difference to his base. And now we have the logical extension of that is Rudy Giuliani saying that he could, in fact, shoot James Comey. Rudy did seem to feel that he would be impeached if he were actually to shoot James Comey. <laughs> so to be fair to Rudy, there was some uh, vague political limit. Rudy did seem to think that that might be a, a politically unpopular action. But, but, but it is not, rather shocking. Not, it is, but it he is, did say it was not prosecutable if he shot yeah, and and on the one hand, you know, they're they're making a distinction which uh, some lawyers do make, um, and that distinction is essentially to say the only remedies against bad presidential behavior is a political remedy, 
and the Constitution provides that the remedy is is impeachment or voting the bum out. You know that there is no legal remedy for bad presidential behavior. I I think that most legal scholars would say that that is not the case. That at least thus far, uh, numerous courts have held and numerous presidents have accepted that at least in certain kinds of circumstances, yes, of course, the president is still bound to follow the law. Uh, indeed, one of the constitutional duties of the U.S. president under our Constitution is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Uh, he is supposed to be the executive. Uh, and that implies that the president doesn't get to just say, well, I'm the president, so if I choose to flout the law, it's not actually illegal. You know, it seems seems like a contradiction in terms. So it, it is. it has been a, a somewhat shocking uh, week or so when it comes to the rule-based order here in the United States. Um, and, the, and the really depressing thing, though, and, and we've talked about this before, when we've talked about are we experiencing constitutional rot or constitutional crisis? When does rot become a crisis? I think the scary thing is that Trump is, on some level, is, is not wrong to say, hey, uh, the only real remedy is a political one, that if the American people lie down and let Trump walk all over them, then he gets to walk all over us, right? That's that's sort of the way it works, that the laws are only as good as the degree right. we actually care about them and choose to take them seriously. Did you want to add something in there, Corey, besides cheering on Rosa? No, I was just cheering on Rosa. Well, I don't I, I don't blame you. And um, David and Ed, if you guys want to cheer too, you're welcome to. Well, let's 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 give David and Ed a chance to do that. David, as we sort of head into this summit between the United States and North Korea, um, it looks like the style of governing and the view of the rule of law of the president of the United States and that of the uh, chairman, the leader in North Korea, seem to be morphing into a single view. Although I, I will have to admit, in Trump's favor. His, his lawyers have not actually said he could assassinate someone with an anti-aircraft gun uh, and not be prosecutable. <laughs> well, that sort of does, you know, take one of the most interesting elements of it off the table, don't you think? I mean, but yeah. he is going to be meeting the master of executions by anti-aircraft gun. Uh, we'll, we'll be getting to that a little bit later on. Um, though the memo that my colleagues at The Times here obtained was truly remarkable because it basically was making the argument not merely that the president was above the law, but that it was sort of reviving the old Nixon argument. If the president does it, it's it's legal. And if it isn't, he could basically pardon himself, which is the, the argument that Rudy Giuliani made and the president himself uh, did. And then the president turned around um, and and declared in a tweet What's more was that the mere appointment of the special counsel, which he misspelled, um, was uh, unconstitutional. Now, he didn't explain what part of the Constitution, the appointment of a special counsel, which obviously there have been many appointed over the years, not just in Watergate, but in many other cases, um, violated the Constitution. I, we can't find a single um, uh, piece of case law that backs up the president's contention, but uh, maybe it's out there. So this is this is having the look of of desperation. Well, did you look at the, Did you look at the case of batshit crazy versus the United States? 
I, I missed that one. I'm like, I'm, this is what happened. That, that's regarded as decisive this. authority by the administration. Yeah. yeah. Rosa, Rosa teaches that case. but um, yeah. right. Of course uh, she does. She, Rosa, lives that right. case. But, uh, We're all living that case. As, as journalists, yeah. as journalists, what we really loved was that uh, we had been told by the president's own lawyers that he had, uh, on the record, that he had nothing to do with that state, the drafting of the statement on Air Force One, um, that uh, said that uh, uh, the meeting with the Russians was all about uh, adoptions and so forth. And now we learn from the statement of lawyers that, in fact, the president had sat down and was deeply involved in drafting it. Uh, and yet they, they don't seem particularly embarrassed about the fact that they... Uh, uh, completely fabricated this story that he had nothing to do with it. In this one um, uh, session, it was right after he met Putin for the first time. So he sort of had Russia on his, on his mind. Um, and uh, I even had a phone conversation with him just prior to, the, just as the plane was taking off, just prior to the time that he sat down to go draft that. And he never even mentioned the New York Times coverage of this issue, which had had led him to draft the statement. Um, that's it. Did you actually give him the words for the statement? Was I this... gave him none of the words for the statement. And when my book is out in two weeks, you'll learn about some other remarkable things he said during the course of that. It was an eventful flight. He talked about Vladimir Putin. R really? And and David, what's the name of your book for everybody? And and where you're, could they you're find gonna, it? You're just going to have to they're just going to have to wait and go see it. No, no, no. We've we've said it before on this. It's called the perfect weapon, and that's that, that's our bit of shameless commerce for the day. Do you have? But the they word can come to David's crazy? talk at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London if they want to hear about it. And, and then retire with us all to whatever pub Corey has chosen, a place where she's now known as a as a regular. I'm sure. There is a pub not too far from there called the Tiara of Optimism, actually. And <laughs> of course for, there is. Now, that is really a fabulous name for a pub, now that I think about it. And you can get Rosa to go in and dig her her uh, tunnels underneath the pub. It could serve multiple purposes. <laughs> yeah, no, right. The upstairs of the pub is the Tiara of Optimism, and then 17 floors below ground is the... <laughs> Crown of Entropy, another pub. There we go. If you yep, could just, if you just have a, if you just have a tube that runs from the bar down to um, the uh, down to Rose's tunnels down there, then Ed and I will just will be there as long as you want us to be there. Well, it'd be interesting to find there'd be some people who would enter, go to the Crown of Entropy, have a few drinks, and end up in the TR of Optimism. There would be others who went into the TR of Optimism had a few drinks, and ended up in the Crown of Entropy. And then uh, there will be the deep state radio nerds who do laps from one to another so that they can have both. <laughs> I, I usually begin my evening at the dog and duck and end it at the horse and hounds, but I'm happy to sort of swap names and continue <laughs> in the same vein. Is, is the batshit crazy part of that round? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the pub crawl stops. Okay, is, may I please intrude to offer the best description I have heard anytime recently? This from Jonah Goldberg on NPR's Morning Edition. <laughs> Just to make you laugh, my friends, and to re-endorse what Rosa has just said. 
Trump's lawyers act towards him like, quote, he's an escaped monkey from a cocaine study and they can't control him no matter what. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, hey, that's America for you. Um, Ed, I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity to um, uh, uh, comment on this, although your reference to horse and hounds is going to have everybody listening think that you were actually the model for the Hugh Grant character in Notting Hill. When he, he said, is, he is. That, 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 that would be profoundly wrong um, on many levels. Um, but, um, and I'm not sure whether to thank you for it, but carry on. Well, yes, no, it's just he represented himself as a reporter from Horse and Hound. Oh, oh, I see. Sorry. Right. Okay. I thought there was like a pub that featured in there was a, Portobello there was Road a or something. Behavioral issue here that you wanted to raise. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of, um, you know, pictures on Sunset Boulevard at the local police station. But um, oh. yeah, so I just run a mile from any Hugh Grant analogy. Okay. What's so wonderful about this is that our fearless leader, David Rothkopf, had the most innocent interpretation of anyone about what that reference meant. That exactly. brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> it is touching. It is it touching. Is. Well, that's me, guys. I'm just a wide-eyed country boy from <laughs> Summit, New Jersey, uh, where, where there's so many wide-eyed country boys. So, Ed, um, you know, I just, you know, I thought you should have the opportunity to offer in your views on the escaped monkey from the cocaine study. Uh, well, when, when was the first deep state? Was it exactly a year ago? Or uh, well, 50, it 50 was weeks just about, ago? It was just about exactly a year ago, yeah. Uh, so early June, early June 2017. Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess if you think about what's happened in the last year, it doesn't terribly shock us. Um, you know, it, it could have been if we'd been prognosticating and you can probably go back a year um, as to what would happen in the next year. It's perhaps in some some respects gone at a slower pace. Um, the revelations coming out of the Mueller inquiry and the challenges to the constitutional order that that have come via Twitter and elsewhere from the president, perhaps in a slower place, at a slower pace than we might have on one or two episodes. Um, guest he would take. Uh, there was a lot more alarm about the imminence of Trump's threat to the republic. Um, and in one sense, that is good um, in that, you know, there are more guardrails than we might have um, um, feared. And another, it's it's bad in, in that, you know, this has become kind of normal. Uh, even, even this week, Trump, uh, the extraordinary memo the New York Times got, Trump's, what Trump's lawyers uh, said earlier this year, and what Trump then said this week on Twitter, taking us back way before Nixon, almost like to the Stuart uh, monarchy, the divine right of kings. It's like, whatever I do, it's fine. Um, the, even with that, the, there's a certain normalization in the politics of what Trump is. So there is sort of good and bad. Uh, there are, there's good and bad to come out of um, you know, the, the, the fact that a year later we're, we're maybe in not as dire straits as we thought we might have been, because we are, um, but the public doesn't feel it. I mean, his, his approval ratings are low by historic standards at this stage, but not shockingly low. And they're certainly higher than they were a year ago. At this time last year, they were sort of 36, 37, 38. Now they're 41, 42. Um, that, 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 in a way, is the most shocking thing of all. 
Let me ask you a question, Ed, just so that people can put this into context. You made a reference to the Stuart monarchy. Can you think of a of an English monarch that is a good uh, precedent for uh, uh, President Trump? You know, a number of people that I've been reading recently compare him to George the Third, and I think this is incredibly unfair to George the Third. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, and, it was and, sane, so, of course. You know, <laughs> right. So, so is there somebody like you know Ethelred the cocaine adult or something? Is, uh, I have an easier time sort of <laughs> thinking of latter-day Roman emperors um, in comparison to Trump uh, of the Caligulas and the Neros and, you know, making horses senators and that kind of stuff than I do um, with English kings. I wouldn't, wa- I wouldn't wish to follow the Charles I analogy because his head was removed from his body. And, um, you know, the, it, it, it sort of breaks down when you start imagining who would the Cromwell be. Maybe that's the Democratic nominee in 2020. Well, uh, there is that the Henry VIII analogy, since he made his wives disappear and Melania's been <laughs> nowhere to be found. That's a good one, which I wish I'd thought of. <laughs> well, you know, you know, we, 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 can, we could spend a lot of time coming up with analogies. I'm sure that, uh, Corey, you may have some. You mentioned the Philippines, and we did see uh, the Philippine president modeling behavior on our own when he molested a woman on stage to the hoots of the crowd um, just just the other day. Um, that's I another- am so, so glad I was innocent of that cultural reference until just now, David, and I sure wish I could have continued innocent of it. Well, do you, did you read the story? Because he was on stage and he asked a woman if he could kiss her and she said no, and he did anyway. And it Ugh. was... I, Duterte is he's a he's a he's a special guy. Anyway, well, let's pick up on some of the consequences of all of this. Corey, you were there in Singapore, and you did mention that the Allies were not, you know, throwing Americans, uh, you know, under those white Mercedes that drive around in the streets of Singapore as taxi cabs. But um, I, you know, it strikes me that in the past week we have seen more miserable treatment of our allies than at any time since I can remember, ranging from launching trade wars against them to threatening additional trade wars. So, for example, in the case of Germany, you know, uh, adding tariffs to their cars, uh, potentially banning them. That was one story, banning the import of luxury German cars. Uh, And then having our superb ambassador to Germany, the utterly deranged cocaine adult monkey, Rick Grinnell, um, uh, uh, in an interview with Breitbart suggests that he was going to champion the cause of conservatives in Europe and thus violate the fundamental law of diplomacy of not meddling, uh, at least publicly, in local politics, which was not well received by the Germans. For some reason, we're waging a war against Europe. You're very close to Europe. You're not in it, obviously, but you're close to it. What the fuck is going on? Well, um, the United States government is busy enacting Gibbon's decline and fall of Rome, right? The, The president seems not to understand that America's greatest comparative advantage 
is having built an international order where most people want us to succeed and most countries help us to do so. He is instead busy alienating and aggravating and penalizing countries that send their troops to fight alongside ours, countries that risk their home territory to adopt policies similar to ours, countries that align their currencies to help support ours. It's genuinely shocking how profligate the president is being with America's comparative advantages in the international order. The only two things that keep me donning the tiara of optimism, despite the White House's behavior, is that, first of all, our adversaries are actually also doing a fantastic job shoring up America's alliance relations. Russia's reprehensible behavior is, is holding Europeans and Americans close together despite the president's abysmal behavior. And the aggressiveness of China's behavior towards its neighbors is likewise making countries still willing to think the U.S. is a better bet than the alternatives. And we should drop to our knees in grateful prayer for those things, because we actually really genuinely don't deserve them right now. Um, uh, David, can we, um, I would agree with everything that um, Corey said in her non-optimistic mode there. But there's been one feature to this trade war that's really struck me, and that is the expanded use of national security excuses to justify what we're doing. So basically, the president had to argue that the Canadians, with um, their trade with the United States, was posing a national security threat, presumably to our industrial base, unless it was, you know, all those logs coming in. And the Canadian uh, foreign minister, Christopher Freeland, who used to be a journalistic colleague of all of ours, went on TV over the weekend and said, excuse me, we sent troops to Afghanistan. We've died for you guys. And we're now suddenly a national security threat to you. Um, and the problem is this is going to get turned against us at some point. How easy would it be for other allies to say, you know, this Google thing uh, or... Um, this Apple thing is a national security threat to us because we can't get inside it to understand who's communicating and plotting. So we're going to ban them. Well, I mean, you it's make just a, you incredibly short-sighted. And you make a good point on two levels. One, this charade of, of, of asserting that there's a national security reason for this uh, is, is based on, you know, some dime store lawyering inside the White House that the president, in order to take these actions, needs some authority, and that the authority that seemed to be available was under Section 232 of the trade law, whatever it was, and therefore he had to assert that there was a national security reason that he was was yeah, doing otherwise this. Otherwise, it's a violation of the WTO, right? That right, we accept that everybody's going to well, challenge this in the WTO, and yeah. we're going to lose, right? right. Yes, yes correct. We're going to lose. Right, so that's that's one level, but but the other point, David, I think that you're making, uh, and this may be a, a, a really good reason for people to go out and buy The Perfect Weapon, um, a, a book that I understand will be available in bookstores any minute, um, uh, is, <laughs> is that, is that, um, that Google and Apple and some of these American companies may actually 
um, uh, uh, create a national security threat to these countries. I mean, there may actually be some truth to that. Well, if we can say, if we can argue that Huawei and CTE pose a national security threat, then they could argue that. But what's most interesting about this is that Canada poses a national security threat, but the president wanted to let up the pressure on ZTE, the Chinese phone and switching manufacturer, which is one of the few cases where you could actually argue that there was, plausibly argue there is a national security threat. Well, well, but Rosa, this creates an opportunity for world peace, obviously, because ZTE found that the way to get out this um, was simply to offer a few trademarks to uh, Ivanka Trump. And uh, well, then there is no national security threat. And I do want to say before I allow you to answer this, <laughs> that I was really moved um, by your mother's standing up for Samantha Bee's characterization of Ivanka Trump. Um, and, <laughs> Good. Let's keep my mother out of this, David. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure my mother would agree a hundred percent with Samantha Bee's characterization. Go ahead. Uh, I, 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 well, sorry, I was left temporarily speechless by your invocation of my mother's tweets. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, it took a yeah, hundred episodes oh, to right. render oh. Rosa temporarily <clears throat> speechless. Yeah, it's rare. I'm surprised it only took 100 episodes. <laughs> episode, speechlessness. Well, David, I, I think we are, I, I can imagine sort of the piece of the, of the demagogues coming up, right? You know, and this is a sort of unholy alliance between, you know, the corrupt interests of the world who will divide up the pie between them. Uh, and I think that's the direction that Donald Trump is moving us internationally, is that traditional alliances, loyalties based on values, uh, are going to be thrown into the trash. And new alliances will emerge based on rapaciousness and a general agreement to ignore the rules-based liberal order and to just kind of divvy things up in some way that is, that is uh, acceptable to the, the autocrats and demagogues of the world. Um, so yes, there are many opportunities for world peace. It'll be a a Pax Demagogia rather than a Pax Americana, however. Wow, that's not going to catch on, I don't think. But I do get. Well, it, you don't you don't have to like it. It will catch yeah. on whether or not you like it. Sadly. Oh well, I I sort of saw it as the the uh, the fetch of our discussion, and none of you will know what my reference is to, but I. Uh, I, wow, I, I missed it. Yeah, no, it's a reference to the movie Mean Girls and the effort of one of the people in Mean Girls to uh, make the term fetch catch on, which it doesn't. Um, and fetch is in fetching, like, oh, that's really fetch. Um, uh, once again, another sort of B-movie reference from me. Um, but, Ed, you know, it does, it does suggest um, uh, what Rosa's suggesting is, is actually sort of happening. And that is, if you want to win the favor of the Trump administration, all you have to do is do something for Trump. You don't actually have to do something for the United States, do something for his family, do something for him. And and I think, you know, Kim Jong-un gets that, you know, he's like, all I have to do is make this dude feel like he's got a win going on here. And I'm going to get a lot of stuff that I want. And so we've really kind of reduced U.S. foreign policy for the first time 
into being all about one person. And maybe instead of Rosa's Pax uh, Demagogica, or whatever she just came up with, we're entering the period of the Pax uh, Trumpica, where, you know, or Trumpia, where, you know, it's just like, you can have peace with the U.S., just grease the palm of the president. Yeah, I mean, I sadly share most of that. I mean, it's interesting that an institution as opposed to a government for a country that's managed to do this well is the World Bank with the um, Women's Entrepreneur Fund that was set up for Ivanka Trump. And in return to this great sort of branding and public relations um, and $500 million worth of contributions so far that the, the Women's Entrepreneurs Fund has received from the likes of Japan, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, and that in return for that, the Trump administration now uh, supports a $13 billion capital increase to the World Bank, and Jim Kim's job as president of the World Bank is safe. So, it, it, you know, the fact that the World Bank deals with governments in uh, what we used to call the third world and knows how to deal with them, I think probably gave them some kind of a comparative advantage with uh, or a head start with how to how to seduce the Trump administration, which it has done very well. You know, it, it, it considered what the price was for getting a renewed a capital replenishment. And it, it, it paid that price and, is, and, and, and presumably deems the trade off as having been worth it. But just two things. I mean, we've got obviously all the attention's focused on the Trump um, Kim Jong Un summit next week, uh, but we've got the G7 summit um, in Quebec later uh, this week, and it, you know it's already been dubbed the G6 plus one. And the G7 was something that the United States created. It, it is a grouping um, of the world's largest or formerly largest economies, because China is, isn't a member of it, um, it, it the, the, where America's leadership, for the most part, has prevailed. It's sort of um, a la carte multilateralism in action. It is the sort of best of informal coordination combined with the formal um, uh, structure. And uh, we're, we're now at the situation where G6 plus one is not a joke. It's, it's actually a description of reality that the other six are united um, and America is isolated. And it doesn't really matter, you know, what Steve Mnuchin goes out and tells his G7 finance minister counterparts. The real action, um, the, real, um, the real decisions are being made in the White House. And people know that he's there just to, just to, um, just to try and sort of smooth the waters, but, but they don't believe him. Um, and that and that's an extraordinary situation to be in. You know, we, we we've been taken back to the Stuart dynasty in terms of the presidential uh, view of uh, um, monarchical powers. But we've been taken back to 1929 in terms, as Senator Ben Sass said, in terms of um, in terms of the economics of the world's largest economy. And it is it is quite a shocking picture that we've that, that we're looking at. It is. And, you know, Corey, this is just the opportunity for you to come in and make a defense of the trade policy of Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who, <laughs> in, in one of your faves, who in 1932 responded to the Smoot-Hawley worldview and said, no, you know, maybe it's a good idea for us to trade with our partners because maybe it'll help us get along better with them. And since then, which is, you know, 86 years, 
Um, the United States has had that as the centerpiece of our economic foreign policy with a few blips, but basically almost 90 years of free trade at the center of it, and that at the center of the international economic order. And lo and behold, I mean, you know, after all, you know, after World War II, it wasn't just the the, the UN and the IMF and the World Bank we set up, but we we set up the GATT, you know, the uh, to have a trade body in the middle of this. Lo and behold, we're reversing 90 years of U.S. foreign policy um, with this position of the Trump administration. Yes, and I am absolutely not going to defend the disgraceful and self-defeating decisions of the Trump administration on trade. Apparently, nobody working trade policy in the Trump administration understands basic economics. Um, and and so that's a big inhibition. All I will say, though, is that um, trade is often a really hard sell for Americans. In the 1880s, you oh. saw wild swings in public attitudes. Yay, 1880s. Yay, you know I'm going to Grover Cleveland's administration. Hey, yeah, of course. When, Corey, I just want to make a point that when David was in the Commerce Department at that point, he took care of that problem, okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know, you, promise you, this you, will be fast, my friends. I promise. He was Cleveland's but favorite Grover trade official. Cleveland got in, I think it's 1888. Um, he makes an impassioned speech uh, in what is now known as the State of the Union Address for free trade, arguing American businesses are strong enough to take it. It's not going to dent American wages. We can set the rules in a way advantageous. And he not only fails to get reelected, the Democrats, the party of free trade at that point in time, lose 50% of their seats in the House of Representatives. And you see wild swings back and forth as the public gets a basic education on economics and trade policy. And I feel like that's where we are all over again. What I mean to say by this is that both political parties have been talking absolute nonsense about trade for in the last election and the Democrats for two elections before. I remind you, Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, arguing that NAFTA had to be renegotiated so that the public no longer understands basic trade policy. Um, you know, isn't surprising because po political leaders aren't doing their jobs. But the other thing is, any of you who have seen this tape of Ronald Reagan arguing against trade wars. Um, yes. it, it's really powerful, but it's also a reminder that this is always a hard fought argument in America. Um, and we need to have the argument and we need to win the argument that explains to the American public that the Trump's trade policies are actually genuinely impoverishing to us. And I'll stop now, I promise. No, well, I think that's a very important analogy. And despite David's joke about my being there, I'm pretty sure Wilbur Ross actually was writing uh, for the opposition <laughs> at the time. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, having said that, Rosa, I want you to have the opportunity to um, note that sometimes, uh, even in a democracy which shows respect for the rule of law, 
sometimes you need presidential leadership to get the American people to do things that are uncomfortable for them to do, uh, like playing to you know, the greater good on free trade as opposed to playing to their basest fears on free trade. And Corey's absolutely right. The Democrats were not helpful on this. Hillary Clinton trade policy in the 2016 election was not helpful. Um, and, and both parties have contributed to this situation where you actually have the president of the United States, you know, sort of unable to set foot in our closest allies right now because of what he's doing on trade policy, whether it's Canada or whether it's Germany. I mean, he's, he's pissed off the English and the Mexicans for other reasons. It's, 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 it's really quite stunning, but a different kind of abrogation of presidential leadership. Yes, uh, true. Although the only thing I would add, of course, is that there's another longstanding failure of leadership on the part of presidents from both parties, uh, not to speak of Congress, over over several decades, which is a, a failure to think adequately about the impact of some of our free trade agreements, both on the standard of living in other countries, but also on uh, standard of living and worker protections and so on here in the United States, I, which is to say that I don't think Americans, Americans, both Trump supporters and non-Trump supporters who are suspicious of some of the trade agreements of recent decades, aren't just suspicious because they don't understand uh, economics, right? I mean, that may be part of it. It may be all of it for some people. But they're also understandably pissed off because many of the agreements, particularly the older ones, I think we've done a better job in more recent agreements, uh, have had, uh, you know, have not been rising tides that lift all boats. They've lifted, you know, catapulted some boats up on, you know, geysers of wealth and left a bunch of other boats to sink. And a lot of Americans have been in those sinking boats. And, you know, so so. And that's partly a failure of leadership and, and and greed and stupidity on the part of our leaders as well. You know, that, that it is not impossible to come up with agreements that simultaneously foster greater greater and freer trade, but that also contain much more robust worker protections and so forth. It is also not impossible to use U.S. law to do those things. I mean, it's it, to just give an example of one of the kinds of mechanisms that we have used pretty effectively in a somewhat different context, take the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, if you start penalizing U.S. companies for uh, accepting bribes and bribing people overseas, they start putting pressure on foreign jurisdictions to pass similar legislation to rein in the behavior of their corporations because they don't want U.S. companies don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage, and you end up getting more of a virtuous cycle uh, in which we we create a, a legal environment in which U.S. corporations have incentives to not only to do the right thing themselves, but to make darn sure that other countries and other companies from other countries do the right thing. We, we, we do know how to improve trade agreements to ensure greater protections for worker rights, human rights, et cetera. Um, we've gotten better at it, but, but I do think that we have, we have been insufficiently sensitive to that issue across the board. And that's a big part of the reason that Americans are suspicious of free trade agreements. I mean, you know, I'm not arguing, needless to say, the Trump tariffs are the sort of dumbest form of protectionism 
that are pretty much guaranteed to backfire and hurt us. Uh, but but I think we have to accept some collective blame, uh, not just blame Trump for the fact that so many Americans don't understand these and think they're generally a bad idea. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's a, there's a fair point there. Uh, obviously, we don't have to swing from one extreme to the other. I think the only weakness in your argument is that you offer up this really 2016 idea that foreign corrupt practices bother us anymore, when in fact, the, so champion, true. <laughs> the, so cha true. the champion of them is now the president of the United States. That was just a dose of nostalgia. Right. Pretty soon, Rudy Giuliani will say, you know, you can't commit a foreign corrupt practice if you're the president. So look, we've got to sort of wrap this up. And I have a couple of things that I'd like to talk about with regard to how we're going to mark this 100th anniversary over the course of the next weeks and months, but also immediately. But I, but I, before I get to that, I would like to sort of go around with the group um, and sort of look 100 episodes out into the future, uh, which is to say about a year. And and you know, stick your neck out and say, what is the thing that we talk about the most that's going to change the most in the next 100 episodes? What do you think the big headline when we look back at our 200th episode is going to be from the year before, uh, whether it's something that changes in the United States or something that changes around the world? David? Well, I guess my start on this would be Iran, which we entered, you know, a, a year ago, we would have thought was a problem that was largely going to be contained for a number of years. We knew it was lurking out there, but probably would next burst into the headlines when there was a change of power. It sure seems if you take everything the administration has said and done in the past couple of months, like we're headed toward a confrontation there. Oddly enough, the country that has a lot of nuclear weapons, and I guess we'll take it up in the next episode, North Korea, it seems the president is now so determined to be successful in getting a peace treaty and so forth that if you took at face value what he's been saying recently, um, he may not press as hard on the nuclear weapons as we would have thought when a year ago we were talking about fire and fury. So I think those two will be a big change. I think Donald Trump will still be president. Uh, I suspect that this discussion of impeachment probably will not go all that far, but maybe I will um, uh, be found to be completely wrong after the midterms on that. Um, okay, uh, Ed. So I would, I mean, in terms of areas of concern where bombs could go off, as it were, I would look to Europe. I mean, the, the Italian government, um, whether it lasts um, for, for a long time or whether there's a, uh, it falls apart and there's another election, which results in a higher populist vote share, which is what the polls indicate would happen if an election were called now, poses a mortal threat to the euro. Um, the German government, Merkel, is not responding to Macron's overtures to make the Eurozone a sane zone that doesn't penalise the club med countries, in which German sadomonetarism, as some like to call it, isn't the rule. Um, so the Franco-German motor is not sparking, and we've got, uh, you know, more than, more than a hammer in the works there, a spanner, rather, in the works in terms of the Italian threat to the Euro. If you think that the Greek debt crisis was big. Think what an economy 10 times the size of Greece with 10 times its debt um, would do to the world's largest currency zone and largest trading zone. And that, that could derail 
all kinds of things, including, you know, the the, um, brave and not so brave efforts of uh, the moderates in European democracy to hold on to power. Uh, Corey. Well, I'm still sitting here reveling in Ed's description of throwing a hammer in the works. <laughs> Spada, sorry. I got, Banner. I got, I no, got my tools so in, in a twist. The Freudian slip, Ed. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like it's a way better <laughs> analogy. Than I like that. that. Thank you, Corey. I'll, I'll, keep, I, I'll keep hammer from now I on. I thought it was a wrench. <laughs> I think the biggest thing that will change a year from now is how much Democrats taking control of the House will change our conversation from um, the the rightful and continued focus on the disgraceful behavior of congressional Republicans to protect the rule of law, to defend law enforcement, at the federal level to reign in the present president by laws, norms, and the Constitution. I, I think our focus will shift because while I sadly um, uh, am drinking at the crowny thorn of entropy bar in the basement where Republicans in Congress behavior is concerned, I think Democrats are likely to retake control of the House And we were spending a lot of time talking about, will Democrats legislate an agenda that differs from the president's and thereby focuses on a different kind of American future? Or will they be unable to restrain themselves from playing into the president's game and spending all of their time and effort on dealing with the president rather than going around him to... Uh, to shape the post-Trump era of American politics. Uh, interesting. Rosa? Yeah, I'm not good at predictions. And and that's partly because it seems to me that the last 18 months has consisted of a, a steady stream of things that no one would have predicted because it was all seemed too impossible. There, you know, There's no way Trump will do this. There's no way Trump will do that. Of course that can't happen. Uh, and then all sorts of things that couldn't happen did happen, uh, which makes me inclined to think that any predictions any of us make, uh, you know, we might as well just, you know, put down random predictions and then pull some out of a hat. They'll be as accurate. Um, so, so I, yeah, I think that we will continue to get a whole series of surprising things that we did not predict. Um, my biggest fear um, is that like the, like the non-existent frog um, being slowly boiled, um, that we will continue to wring our hands as the rot spreads and that there will not be a single moment. My, my prediction would be that things continue to get worse. In, things will continue to get worse. The specific ways and nature of the worseness is not predictable, but it is probably a safe, but they will continue to get worse on the rule of law front, both domestically and internationally, um, and that it will be a, there will be no single event of such shockingness, such shocking magnitude to, as to cause a sort of wholesale uh, resistance of any sort, legal, political, or otherwise, 
that instead that each each event will seem sufficiently like the most recent ones as we become gradually inured to the uh, craziness and appalling behavior of this administration, that things will get worse and we won't do anything about it. Wow, that is depressing. However, you know, one of the reasons that I love you guys is that you have left the door open for me to offer my uh, brief take on this. And that is that a hundred episodes from now, um, I'm going to stick my neck out and say, Donald Trump will not be the president of the United States. Um, and I think that's because it would be foolhardy to expect that the Trump saga is actually going to become less dramatic, uh, more tolerable, um, or um, uh, somehow we, we're going to find a, a way to sustain it. Uh, I do think the House will change. I do think further investigations will make it harder for him to stay. And I continue to think that Trump will um, resign rather than face the humiliation of uh, 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 impeachment and conviction. Um, and I realize this is a, a long shot, but but I'm I'm there and. You know, the question really is going to be, could Mike Pence succeed him? Where is where is the Mueller investigation going to leave us on Mike Pence? Or do we face the prospect a year from now of President of the United States, Kevin McCarthy, um, uh, who could well, well, I guess he won't be the Speaker of the House. I guess Nancy Pelosi could be the next President of the United States. So that... Um, well, that's a kind of an interesting prospect to end up to have Trump usher in the first woman president. Um, uh, well, you are going on a, on a limb. Well, I, I'm just carrying it to its illogical. <laughs> its logical. <laughs> but, but but having said that, I do. Free and slip, David. <laughs> well, maybe maybe so, but you know, we'll see. We'll see where we end up. Anyway, you know, hundred years, a hundred episodes into this thing, uh, in Trump time, it seems like a hundred years. Uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience, mostly because of you folks and the others who have joined us on the air. Over the course of the summer, what we're going to do is in each episode, we're going to bring in some of the other people who've added so much to this um, uh, this discussion uh, and really kind of celebrate them and uh, throughout the, the, the summer. Um, and uh, but I do want to say that, you know, the thing that and I, I suspect that all the, the, the you guys agree with that the thing that has made Deep State Radio such a fantastic experience is the Deep State Radio nerds. It's the group of folks that are out there. Here, who are here. So engaged to come, some come up to us at events who manage to mugs. ask for mugs and maintain their sense of humor. We're not gonna let you down. We have created a new set of mugs in honor of this occasion uh, and a new set of t-shirts and sweatshirts. Um, that bear the official logo of the Ministry of Snark, uh, and it's and it's and the 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 Latin motto for the Ministry of Snark, which is Veni Vidi Nerdy, um, and uh, it's a it's a really kind of next generation uh, 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 type of swag, and all it's going to take <laughs> is for the first hundred uh, of you out there to, you know, write the best testimonials for Deep State Radio that you can tweet to the world. 
um, and we you have to do it on Twitter so that people can see it. Um, uh, you know, all you do is do it, post it, put hashtag Deep State Radio in there. Uh, and if you're in the top 100, and you're bound to be, um, we'll send you a mug or a T-shirt or sweatshirt um, from David. Are our, our employees, contributors, and periodic commentators on Deep State Radio uh, not eligible for this incredible offer? No, they're all eligible. There are no <laughs> rules like that. <laughs> Why not spread the corruption of the swamp? Exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is the deep state, Dave. In, in fact, no... David, you can be the first hundred tweeters. Yeah. In fact, we'll, we'll just send them directly to your home. Um, but, but, but so we're going to do that. And in the next uh, uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to announce the first set of uh, Deep State live um, uh, performances where we'll get the group together in the Tiara of Optimism pub. For or an in, interpretive uh, dance. For interpretive dance. Corey has prepared this for us all. Um, and uh, and Ed is also very well known. I, I think we should have Rose's mother live tweet the event. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's an excellent uh. idea. Um, but anyway, in the fall, uh, we're starting in September. We will we will start doing some of these live events uh, that other podcasts have made popular. But it's only because people really would like to see us. So we'll be out there, um, and we're going to come up with some new ways that you can engage with us on a regular basis as kind of members of the deep state. Uh, and we'll be uh, you know raffling off memberships in the deep state as well. So stay tuned because. This summer is going to be super eventful for Deep State Radio, for the members of Deep State, for Deep State Radio nerds, uh, and uh, and probably for the world, which will keep you listening for other reasons as well. Uh, in any event, uh, it's been a great first hundred episodes, and I want to thank uh, you guys uh, for having made that possible, Rosa, Corey, Ed, and David. Thank you, David, Thank you. for being our fearless leader and ringleader. <laughs> um, ringleader. Ring I have to go now. In, in, it's, such a, it's such a glorious job. I have to go and pack boxes full of T-shirts to ship. To <laughs> now, well, you know, I think now I understand why you're in Shanghai. You clearly went because you have sourced all of the T-shirts there. Now, I've not only sourced them, but I'm sitting here silk screening them as we speak. David, are what? you using Ivanka Trump trademark textiles? Well, that would be, I could be, but they've all, they're all known as Adrian Vittadini trademark textiles now. Uh, and uh, are there going to be tariffs on these shirts and mugs? Um, that's an interesting question. There probably will be, given the position that we've taken. But uh, since we're giving them away free, <laughs> even a 50% tariff should not be an obstacle to people. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm just doing the math. That's confusing. Yeah, I'm, I'm really confused. Here. Yeah, you just you just, just you're just not good at economics, are you, Ed? <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm no, stuck. Right, Ed Luce, the economics correspondent for Horse and Hound magazine. Uh, uh, exactly. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thanks for the first hundred, and look forward to the next hundred. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.